This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Just a heads up, this episode contains some strong language. Not on my end, though. Don't at me. All right, on with the show. This is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. And I'm Dwali Saikautau, Shadow of the Moon. Yajong. Fem, remember last year when we were saying, ugh, this year, can't wait for 2021. There have been some improvements, some light in this pandemic that we are all trying to live through. For instance, a lot of us got into cooking. Many of us spent more time with our loved ones, and a lot of us went out and got pets. And we watched a lot of TV. Uh, I hate to admit this, but in my hours of darkness and isolation, I watched all five seasons of a Turkish TV series on Netflix called Resurrection Ertegrul. (laughs) This is an epic fictional drama about the father of the Ottoman Empire. And now I use the word evala in just about every sentence. Evala. It has has so many meanings, including thanks and trust in God. Evala. Good Lord. (laughs) Well, Team Code Switch has a lot to share about the stuff we've all been watching because this year there are a bunch of shows that actually had a lot to say about race culture and identity. In a minute, we'll hear how a new show, staffed almost entirely by Native Americans, gave us a way different view of Indian life than the stereotypes usually do. Hell no, not an owl! Oh my god! Yo, that's not a good sign. Also, a delightful comedy about a Muslim women's punk band and a unique children's series that haunts ghosts in old Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Zelda, and welcome to City of Ghosts. But first, Karen, you watched a show recently that you were kind of surprised to fall in love with. What's that about? I did. This year, the 80s hit The Wonder Years got reimagined Wahli. Instead of Kevin Arnold and his family in an unspecified suburb somewhere, we got a new family, a black family, in Montgomery, Alabama. Bad enough my son doesn't have rhythm. Hey! Yet. My son doesn't have rhythm yet. And in this series, Kevin is Dean, Dean Williams. I'm guessing the new Wonder Years is looking at some things the original one didn't, like race? That's right. And I'll be honest, Wahli, I was worried that the new version would be the white Arnolds in black bodies. But as I started to watch, I realized that this new version of the Wonder Years was its own thing. Dean's big sister Kim falls for a charismatic Black Panther and has to sneak around to see him before she dumps him. His older brother Bruce is in the Army in Vietnam, and whenever Dean gets too nosy about things that they thought didn't concern him, his parents are quick to tell him. Stay out of grown folks' business. I think most cultures have a similar saying about how kids don't need to be concerning themselves with things the elders are trying to figure out. Like in my Hmong house, it was always... This is for adults only. Mm. But um, in this new Wonder Years, Karen, what's your favorite moment so far? Uh, My favorite episode so far is centered on Lillian Williams. Lillian is the mom in the family. Everyone adores her, but like a lot of moms, she gets taken for granted. Narrator Don Cheadle is the grown-up dean who looks back on his childhood. 
Now that I think about it, today would be a good day for Dean to go to work with me. We have a lot of fun stuff planned. I didn't know where my mom worked, but I could tell by her sweater her job was boring. Oh, just you wait, kid. So I wanted to talk to Seikon Senglo, who plays Lillian, about her character and that episode. In it, Dean goes with her to take your child to work day. Senglo says there are some similarities between her and Lillian. Similar to my character, I love crunching numbers and I like the books to be balanced. So I know I'm not an accountant, but I do care very much about how my money is spent. Dean figures, as his father and sister do, his mother had things pretty much handled at home. But going to work with her was a revelation. I never knew the role Mama played at work. I knew she had a job, but I just pictured her grocery shopping and running errands all day. She ran that place. People listened to her. People had to listen to her. Although, that had a price. Lillian was a senior accountant with a master's degree at the state treasury department the only person there with those credentials. So she had to gently step around male egos, most of those egos belonging to white males, to do her work. Sengla sees it this way. Sometimes you got to play the game. You know, you got to play a game. (laughs) So I think she's just like, let me play this game. I will say this, though. I think it must have been exhausting in that era as much as it requires finesse in how you talk to people and how you deal with people at work. Especially when, like Lillian, you are the only Black executive. Dean saw the fine line his mom had to walk. You're not going to go to the cafeteria with the other account execs? Oh, uh, they don't want to eat with me. (laughs) What about the secretaries? They have other things to worry about. I guess for a Black woman in the position my mom was in in the 1960s, working mom meant you didn't have a place at anybody's lunch table. But it didn't slow her down, and that made her even more of a hero to me. Dean started the day kind of clueless about what his mom did, but by the end of it, he had huge respect for all she's balancing. Sekhan Sengblo says in a lot of ways, 1968 Alabama and what Lillian was dealing with isn't so different from what we're seeing in the United States right now. You know, you can't deny the the growth and the change and, and all the wonderful things that have happened and the abilities that people have to live their life freely and enjoy lifestyles freely. Uh, But it's certainly been a mirror for sure. And really uncanny how similar the eras are considering how much we think has already changed. That is not the wonder years I remember from the eighties. Exactly, Dwali. It's focusing its stories and a lot of American history through a Black family's eyes. And that's something we don't see very often. Okay, now we're going to bring on some other members of the team. Dwali, you spoke to Code Switch producer Kumari Devarajan about a show she loved. I did. How's it going, Kumari? It's good. It's good. It's so good to be with you. I've missed seeing you at NPR West. I've missed seeing you. Um, For those of you who don't know, Diwali used to sit directly behind me, so I really miss turning my chair around and looking at you working so intently while I was distracting myself (laughs) and others. (laughs) Well, Kumari, what TV show were you binging this year? I was watching We Are Lady Parts. It's a musical comedy about a punk band in London that is made up of all Muslim women. We Are Lady Parts. Here's a little something we thought you might like. 
Excellent. I'm excited already. I, I miss live music. What drew you to this show? Well, what felt really different about this show was, okay, so obviously it's a whole new frontier when it comes to representation on screen. But usually when I see shows that are one of a kind in that sense, they feel kind of like dumbed down and pandering. Like they're trying to check boxes or trying to appease a really broad audience, maybe? Yeah, exactly. And in contrast, We Are Lady Parts felt so authentic. The jokes were really sophisticated and high level, and they felt kind of insidery. As a viewer, I appreciate that. And, and you're right. You know, you don't see that a lot. So what happens in the show? Well, I'm going to have one of the actresses answer that. Her name is Anjana Vasan. The story of Lady Parts is from the perspective of Amina, the character that I play, and her journey with joining the band. When we first meet Amina, um, she's very bookish and she seems very, you know, straight-laced, but she seems like the furthest idea from punk. Um, But she's secretly a genius guitarist. Oh, so hang on, you are a guitarist? She's a guitarist. She's a guitarist. Play something. Play something. Play something. Um, uh, uh, I don't play, I just teach. You've got a play to teach. Uh, I don't perform. My nervy disposition induces diarrhea and vomiting. Ew. Mm-hmm. Oh, what could go wrong? <laughs> right. How does Amina's character fit in with the band then? Yeah, so it's a little rocky at first. One conflict comes to a head over lyrics to a song called Voldemort Under My Headscarf. Sorry, uh, did you say Voldemort under my headscarf? Yeah. You got a problem with my lyrics? No. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I get it. it it's, it's just, um, I don't know, uh, some people might find it offensive. Amina then tries to rewrite the song. Okay, so uh, maybe instead of Voldemort under my headscarf, you could do maybe... I, I love to wear my I also spoke with Juliet Motemed. She plays Aisha, the drummer who wrote the song. So most of the women in the band wear a hijab. They're calling out to the viewer, the person who's watching them, saying, why are you so scared? If this was a hat or a helmet or anything else, you wouldn't be looking at me with fear. But let me tell you, underneath this headscarf, there's Voldemort. Like, I'm going to fight you kind of thing. For me as a viewer, it was one of my favorite songs. But initially, like on first listen, it made me sort of uncomfortable. I hear people say horrible things about hijabs and people who wear them all the time. That even hearing it done in a satirical way, it made me nervous to think about how people would react to that. Of course, I actually really understand your kind of initial feeling of discomfort with that. Here's Juliet again. Because I think a lot of a lot of the time, stuff like this can be handled really clumsily or perhaps heavy-handedly in a way that doesn't quite serve the audience that it's for and can end up feeling maybe a little bit insensitive. Because I think when you see see it on paper, it doesn't quite hit the same way as it does (laughs) when we're screaming it over a mic, being absolutely ridiculous. Like, what could I be hiding? What could I be hiding? I think the show left room for viewers like me to feel a bit uncomfortable. Here's Anjana, who plays Amina. That discomfort is basically Amina's discomfort. And Amina, that's the bookish one? She's the shy girl pukes when she performs? Yeah. And here the girls are 
being loud and unapologetic and she's probably thinking well they're being too loud and too unapologetic and maybe the lyrics are too on the nose and actually while she's playing the song she gets really into it and then she realizes that oh no this is just a spoof this is satire this is making fun of the fear and by saying it out loud you know with a certain amount of ridiculousness it dispels the fear it makes it like not a scary thing thanks Gamari. thanks to ali <laughs> I saw the first episode of this, and I have to say I fell in love, and now I'm addicted. I know, me too. All right. After the break, we're coming back with more shows that illuminated something about race and identity for other members of the Code Switch team. Including one of my problematic faves. Tonight on The Bachelorette. So stick around. We'll be back in just a minute. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, a people's history tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Karen. Duahli. Code Switch. So we are talking TV here, stuff we love, and that maybe you will too. Up next, we're going to be talking about one of my guilty pleasures. It's a show that I can't tell if I love or just love to hate. Tonight on The Bachelorette. This is the woman I've been waiting for my entire life. And I'm just like, nothing can go wrong. Michelle? 
That's right. It's the Bachelor Bachelorette franchise, a show that's been running in different iterations for almost 20 years. And if you've somehow missed it, a quick explanatory comma, the premise is basically that a cadre of young women or men compete to find love with one eligible bachelor or bachelorette, ideally ending in an engagement. Joining me to talk about the latest season of The Bachelorette is Code Switch editor Leah Danella. Hey, Leah. Hi, Karen. Leah, I think it may surprise some people that you and I are both, to some extent, citizens of Bachelor Nation. So tell me, what made you want to talk about this franchise for Code Switch? I mean, I have some guesses. So one of the things I find really interesting is that this show tries so hard to be a complete fantasy where all that matters is falling in love. You rarely hear contestants talk about politics or religion or the news or gender roles or even like what their real jobs are besides like pizzapreneur. Um, (laughs) The episodes are shot in these beautiful locations and the contestants are largely isolated while the show is filming. But even within this kind of dream world, it just has not been able to avoid the topic of race, especially in the past few years. Boy, this is true. I mean, for years and years, the Bachelor franchise was criticized for its lack of diversity when it came to the show's contestants. In fact, in 2012, two black men actually sued The Bachelor for casting discrimination. The judge ultimately dismissed that case while not denying that the show had a preference for white cast members, but rather said that choosing to do so was within the production rights under the First Amendment. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, they've been pretty successfully skirting the issue of diversity on the show for years. Yeah. But then, as you know, during the racial uprising in 2020, it seems like the show decided it couldn't not talk about race. Um, And it couldn't not have more black people specifically on the show, which led to some really, really uncomfortable moments, including the show's longtime host, Chris Harrison, stepping back from his role for a bit. More recently, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette have been casting more and more people of color in prominent roles. They've now had three black women cast as The Bachelorette, one black man as The Bachelor. And since 2020, it seems like they've been trying to center these discussions about race, although largely it's only been about blackness and whiteness. So, Karen, I wanted to better understand why race became a topic that the show ultimately decided to talk about. So I called up Lauren Michelle Jackson, assistant professor of English at Northwestern University. I'm also a contributing writer for The New Yorker and the author of an essay collection called White Negroes. Lauren wrote an essay in The New Yorker about race and The Bachelor, and she told me that whether or not it's made explicit. There's always a racial dimension to, to how people select partners, how people date, who people view as desirable, and that decision is made again and again and again with each season of The Bachelor. She said that explains why, even though there have been a number of people of color cast as contestants on the show, there's never been a Black contestant who's made it to the point of getting engaged. You cannot laissez-faire into diversity, representation, et cetera, et cetera, right? Someone actually has to make an intervention and put somebody into a certain role Which is especially awkward for a show that's supposed to be about the magic and mystery of falling in love. Yeah, it's not so romantic when the producers come around and say, you, Bachelorette, have to interview at least three people of color for the role of your husband. Mm -hmm. And you have to (laughs) consult with a diverse hiring panel before making any final decisions. So, Leah, 
talk to me about this current season because it's a little different. It centers around Michelle, a biracial black woman, and many of the contestants vying for her hand are black men. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, the show actually spends a lot of time talking about race. Michelle talks about what it was like to be the only black girl in her classes growing up. I was oftentimes the only person of color in my classroom. She talks about the assumptions that are made when she's seen with a black man versus a white man. Anytime I'm with a man of color, I'm, we're a couple. That's what everyone sees it as. She talks about ending a relationship with a white partner because he was minimizing the racism she had to deal with. If I have to explain that, um, I'll also be explaining that the relationship's not going to work. And... I mean, I mean, I'm curious, Karen, because you've been watching the show too. How do those conversations land with you? I don't know whether Michelle is, but I think the show is very conscious of the fact that most of the bachelors and bachelorette watchers are not people of color. They're white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't want them to feel like they've missed anything. Mm-hmm. And so the conversations about race to me, and remember... <laughs> I work at Code Switch, so it's a little (laughs) bit different here. Um, They seem very race 101. I have felt really similarly. Um, Like, they're they're definitely trying to perform these conversations. Mm -hmm. But I think the overall experience of watching the show is still really awkward. And Lauren Michelle Jackson said that kind of makes sense. I watch a lot of reality TV. I watch a lot of Bravo. And um, Bravo also similarly has also been trying to diversify, add um, women of color to its cast, um, introduce conversations about race um, in the show. And it's been one of those things that as a Black viewer has been um, probably just as uncomfortable for me as it has been for uh, white viewers of the show, because, you know, I don't watch The Real Housewives to um, think more deeply about Uh, race in America, which is not to say that race isn't always there. It goes back to what you said earlier, I think, Leah. This show started out as a silly kind of numbing escape for you. And then when it starts having conversations about race, when it starts going deeper and gets really serious, it becomes far less of an escape. Yeah, it suddenly feels much more like real life where I'm constantly waiting for someone to say something weird and then trying to unpack it. You said it. So, Leah, the show you're watching, but not necessarily recommending, is season 18 of The Bachelorette. Thanks so much. Thank you, Karen. Now to one of the best series this year, in my humble opinion, Reservation Dogs on Hulu. Our Code Switch fellow Sam Yellowhorse Kessler is here to talk about this excellent production. Hey, Sam. Hey, Dwathli. So I watched Reservation Dogs and could not get enough of it. I, I wanted so much more. The title itself is kind of a joke. I picked up on the Tarantino reference. It's a play on Reservoir Dogs, but there's another kind of nod there, right? Yeah, res dogs are a real phenomenon in reservations. They're like these scrappy wild dogs that roam about without a proper home, and they have a real charm to them. And so that kind of describes our protagonists as well, four native teenagers in Oklahoma who think of themselves as modern-day bandits. They're trying to commit enough petty theft to buy their way out of the res to California. 
There's so much I loved about this show. And the writers and the main cast are entirely indigenous, right? Yeah. And so I was interested in talking with someone who has a hand in both of those. And one name stuck out in particular. Hi, my name is Dallas Goldtooth. Dallas is an actor in the first season of the show, and he's a writer on the second season. And he made it clear that Reservation Dogs is all about showing people a side of Native Americans that they rarely get to see on TV. We're well aware of how the outside world sees us. And Native American people, they see it as a monolithic culture that is like, you know, the topless warrior on top of a, on top of a horse spewing out wisdom left and right. And so we very much wanted to upend that. When I first saw him on Res Dogs, I was like, what? Yes. And I could not stop laughing, especially because I've seen his very serious side, you know, um, when I was covering the Standing Rock protests in the Dakotas. And then he was a different kind of force. So seeing him so exaggerated, that was just priceless. <laughs> yeah. And I should say that the first time you see him, he does come riding up on horseback, yeah. bare chested, just a full-on stereotype. And I mean, I think that's really what he was really talking about was putting these kinds of stereotypes on display. Yeah. So the character I play in Reservation Dogs, his name is William Knifeman, but most people know him as Spirit. He is, he's a spirit. He is a person that once existed in the late 1800s and died at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. I didn't kill anybody. But I fought bravely. Well, I didn't actually fight. I actually didn't even get into the fight itself. But I came over that hill real rugged like, ah, ah. I saw Custer like that. That yellow hair. He was sitting there. Son of the morning star, that guy right there. Fuck, I really hated him. So I went after him. But then the damn horse hit a gopher hole. Fucking rolled over and squashed me. I died there. Every scene that Goldtooth is in, I mean, he just has me laughing out loud. There's so many good characters in Res Dogs, though. And um, I'm curious, what drew you to Dallas Goldtooth? Honestly, because I really loved his character this season, just as you did. And I wanted to talk to him about that. But also, Dallas has kind of an amazing resume. He's an activist, a writer, an actor. And he was in the indigenous comedy group, the 1491s. The 1491s is this crew out of Minnesota, and all five members, according to Goldtooth, are hardcore Prince fans. So as he explains, party like it's 1491, you know, (laughs) the year before it all went to, well, you know, Columbus arrives. They have this great video about an Indian store where Dallas plays a similar character to the one we just heard. I had to go on a vision quest and ask for the raccoon spirit to come to me. I humbly put out tobacco for him. And when he came, I killed him. So before, um, he was performing comedy for indigenous audience, and now he's working on a show for FX and Hulu. I'm guessing that's kind of a different audience to play to. I thought so, too. So I asked Alice about that. To be absolutely honest, in my experience in the writer's room thus far, is that we actually spend very little time worried about how non-native people are going to perceive the show like the vast majority of our time is spent on are we telling a good story are we actually being very smart and intelligent and not taking our audience for granted and make sure that you know we're giving them a smart show And what I actually loved about Reservation Dogs is that the writers were so unafraid to make jokes that only appealed to natives. It felt so good at certain times to be in on these jokes. Did Dallas have any moments in particular that he loved from the show? 
Yeah, we actually both had the same moment we really loved. Uh, here's Dallas again. The uh, sequence when they go visit, the, when the res- reservation dogs goes, go to visit Uncle Brownie and they encounter an owl. No, I'm not going to the door. Hey, Uncle. Oh, fuck. Hell no, not an owl. Oh, my God. Yo, that's not a good sign. I love that so much because it's so, it's such like a... It's like an inside joke. Like folks, in, there are, not all native communities have taboos. There, are, like, but there are some commonalities between certain tribes, and like the the motif of owls is a common one enough to where it that that joke really resonated with a lot of people. So true, so true. Well, that's Dallas Goldtooth talking about reservation dogs. Thanks for bringing us this show, Sam. No problem, Dwali. And our final recommendation comes from our producer, Christina Kala. Hey, Christina. Hey, Karen. So I know you really like animated series, and you brought us one today, right? I did. So the show I wanted to share today is called City of Ghosts. It's this really earnest, tender show that blends animation and real life beautifully. It's all about L.A., and it's for kids, But honestly, I think it can be enjoyed by anyone because it's full of really cool true stories. So for people who haven't seen it, Christina, tell us what it's all about. So it's mockumentary style, and it follows a girl from Boyle Heights named Zelda who loves ghosts. Hi, I'm Zelda, and welcome to City of Ghosts. She has a ghost club that's a bunch of kids from around L.A. that go around looking for ghosts to record their stories. (laughs) That's creator Elizabeth Ito. She's the show's director, she's an animator, and she's an L.A. native. You know, I recognize the animation from her previous work, Adventure Time. Mm -hmm. That was a huge hit with kids and with grown-up critics. But, Christina, why a ghost club? So there's a few reasons for that. For one, it was inspired in part by an incident when Elizabeth was six. One night, she got up to go to the bathroom as one does sometimes. Yeah. And she saw her great-grandmother's ghost. When I was, like, sitting there, I thought I saw this, like, foggy shape in the hallway. And so I just called out to my parents, like, somebody help me, there's a ghost out here. Um, And my dad shouted back, like, it's fine, go to bed. And so I did that. Uh, (laughs) And then the next morning, he asked me, basically, like, Oh, so you you saw a ghost in the hallway? And, and then he said, like, he saw it, too, earlier in the night, and he didn't get up to help me because he was scared. <laughs> Her dad's no fool. I would be scared, too. Same, same. Um, and even though she's an adult now, Elizabeth has kept thinking about that moment and how she reacted. I wish that wasn't my response, because, like, when I think about it with, like, my great-grandmother, I loved my great-grandmother, so I would have loved, I would love now if I was able to talk to her and and find out more about her life. For the show, she was also looking for something where a kid could be seen as more of an expert than an adult. If there are ghosts, I feel like that's why kids see them a lot, because they're open to it and they're open to understanding um, why something might be there. (laughs) which makes perfect sense. So who are some of the ghosts Zelda and the Ghost Club meet? I mean, since it's set in L.A., I'm guessing there are some really cool ones. There absolutely are. There's a jazz drummer in Lamert Park. 
an alebrije who likes Korean barbecue. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> a punk ghost who loves drinking her daughter's coffee and gets hype on the caffeine. And one of my favorite episodes is about the Tongva. There's this kid, Jasper, who is Tongva and comes to the ghost club for help because he's hearing this voice and he wants to figure out where it's coming from. Along the way, he and the ghost club meet this guy, Mr. Craig, who is also Tongva and who helps guide them. Tongva? What's Tongva? Tongva is a name that we use today, the indigenous people of the Los Angeles Basin. I have ancestors that come from all over the world, but the ones that I'm very connected to are the ones that come from this place. And for us, the Tongva, there's an extension to that because we also consider some of these first people in our stories, these non-human people, our ancestors as well. Whoa, like lizards or clouds or really poor. Where does the show get inspiration for who these ancestors and ghosts are going to be? Yeah, so since the show blends animation and reality, mm-hmm. the adults that the kids are learning about and learning from are all real people, and these are their real stories. So when they talk to the raven, they're learning about the Tongva from Tongva writer and activist L. Frank Manriquez. Or there's an episode where they learn about L.A. punk icon Atomic Nancy, and Nancy Sakizawa is still alive, though she plays a ghost. <laughs> um, her parents owned a punk rock cafe called the Atomic Cafe in Little Tokyo. Here's Elizabeth again. That's how people and kids specifically learn the best about the communities they live in. Like They learn about what used to be in their community by m- most of the time, I think it's like asking adults. I mean, it was also supposed to be kind of like a reflection of me because, like, I learned about everything in this city initially from my parents, you know, like, like my dad uh, going all the time at the holidays to get tamales from La Mascota in in, uh, East L.A. and me later on in life being like, why do we get tamales all the time at the holidays? Like, we're, we're Japanese people. And his response was really just like, that's what that's what people in my neighborhood did when I was little. So that's what I do. And I like it. I mean, Karen, I know you live in L.A. I grew up in the suburbs and I <laughs> rep L.A. so hard. So I'm always on the lookout for shows about the city that feel like real representations of the place. And this one absolutely feels that way. Well, thank you so much for bringing this our way, Christina. Thank you, Karen. Christina's recommendation is City of Ghosts from creator Elizabeth Ito. Wow, Karen. I'm not an L.A. native, but I've spent a lot of time there, and listening to your conversation with Christina makes me want to be back, maybe not hunting for ghosts myself, but enjoying Boyle Heights and other neighborhoods. You can come stay with me. Excellent. And that's our show. We want to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter and IG. We're at NPR Code Switch. Tweet at us and tell us what show you're binging this season. I'm at Karen Bates. And subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash codeswitch newsletter. And email us at codeswitch at npr.org. This episode was produced by Kamari Devarajan. It was edited by Leah Danella and Steve Drummond. 
And shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam, some of whom you heard from today. Christina Kala, Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, Jess Kung, Alyssa Jung Perry, L.A. Johnson, and Summer Tomad. Our intern is Asia Drain. I'm Dua Hli Sai Tao. And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. Nyo Zhong. See ya. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.